well, welcome to the first official week of this Follow Me series. So last week I kind of introduced this and was just freestyling a little bit, you know, so it was some scriptures from here and there and some stories and whatever. But this week I'm actually going to preach through a, a, a portion of the, uh, of, of the scriptures from the beginning of uh, the Gospel of John, if you want to just, you know, if you have your Bibles or your devices or whatever, it'll be on the screen too. Um, if you want to turn to John chapter 1, just so you got that ready. Uh, hopefully you've had the opportunity to sign up for a group and you've picked up one of the devotionals. So, you know, we wrote these books and uh, we don't really have anything to do with them after this series because they've got like dates in them and stuff and they're, you know, so t- please take them. We want them gone. Um, that would be great. Uh, I'm just going to pray before I start in. Is that cool? All right. So, Holy Spirit, we, we just invite your presence. And Jesus, I ask that you would um, be here among us, that your, your presence and, and that your kingdom would come, that you would uh, be showing us what it looks like to be devoted disciples of yours and, uh, and just to follow you with everything that we have. And so, Lord, I ask that you would come and uh, speak to each of us individually, whether that's uh, just impressions in our minds or, or pictures in our mind's eye or uh, just a, a sense of knowing that you're present. God, I invite your presence, and, and I ask that you would come and reveal yourself to us even more. Amen. Amen. So I have this deep conviction that our assignment as disciples of Jesus is not to um, react to the world around us, but that it is to respond um, from a, a, a deep place of rootedness in Jesus and to bring a word from elsewhere. And that's a, a phrase that's kind of been turning over in my head for the last number of weeks and months, is to bring a word from elsewhere. Because, you know, the church in this age, in this time, is really good at reacting, very reactionary to what we see in the news and what we see going on around us in the community and so on and so forth. But I believe that the task that Jesus has for his disciples is to actually bring a word, bring an inspired word from somewhere else, from another place, from another time, from another, from even from another realm, as strange as that might sound. And I think that uh, if, if we're going to be followers of Jesus who are submitted to him in thought, word, and deed, uh, we need to be increasingly able to respond instead of reacting. Because reaction comes from a place of rash decision-making. Reaction comes from a place that's driven by emotion rather than a deep commitment to the gospel of Jesus. And when, when we're rooted and connected to who Jesus is and the assignment that he has for us in this place and time, I believe that we'll be able to be disciples who respond to his call, to his invitation to follow him in a more meaningful way to our neighbors and even people who don't know him yet. Um, So, you know, disciples aren't a mirror that reflects an inverted image of culture back to itself. So you know how when you look in a mirror, what you see is like backwards from what it actually is, right? It's a reflection. And I don't think that disciples of Jesus are supposed to be a mirror to the culture that just shows it the opposite of what it actually is. I believe that Jesus calls his followers to be an alternate society of people who are committed to doing life in a different way. Because 
We have one side and the other side evident in the world. Come up with any, any radioactive hot topic that you would uh, like to discuss, and you have you know, the, the right and the left. You have the conservative and the liberal perspective. You have the, you know, whatever, right? But we are called to be an alternate society of followers of Jesus who are bringing a word from elsewhere. And I think that that's really at the center of, of discipleship. Our neighbors can turn on the TV and find tribalism pretty easily, right? All that is is just behavior that comes from a loyalty to uh, a small group of like-minded individuals. That's what tribalism is. We can find tribalism really easily. People don't need to come to church to find that. There are more efficient ways of being tribal than carving time out and coming to a place and gathering with people who aren't like you and who maybe don't think exactly the way you do to worship really an inconvenient Jesus who asks us to lay down a lot in order to follow him, right? Um, so this sacred call to discipleship means we're bringing a word from elsewhere. And if anybody understands what it means to bring a word from elsewhere, uh, John the Baptist definitely gets it. So the opening verses of the Gospel of John uh, are introducing these two characters, Jesus and John the Baptist. And they'll be important in the first few chapters. Um, and, and so they're kind of introduced alongside one another as like friends. They're actually related. There's um, just an interesting dynamic between Jesus and John because John was born first but he says himself that his assignment, the purpose for his life, was to pave the way, was to announce the one who was coming after him, Jesus, his younger cousin. Uh, so in John 1, 14 to 18, it's kind of introducing Jesus and, and John. And it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So this is Jesus that he's talking about here. Then it says, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. So what's John saying? Basically what he's saying is, hey, Jesus has been around forever. Jesus is actually God, which is a big claim, right? Jesus is God. And so uh, he's saying, you know, he's been around forever. He was before me. Um, For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Now I'll stop and uh, just, I'm going to refer back to my message from last week a little bit. So if that's a little lost on you, I'm sorry. Uh, Go back and listen to it and then it'll make sense. And uh, that kind of set the stage for a little bit of this. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. This is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, because John says, what does he say? He says, no one has ever seen God. This is a big claim, because in the Old Testament, there are stories about people seeing God, right? But he's saying, no one has ever seen God. And so the, the, the point that he's making is that in light of the revelation of Jesus, in light of Jesus walking on the earth, in comparison with that, No one has seen God. There's nothing like the picture of God that Jesus delivers when he walks around on the earth and talks to people and teaches people and interacts with with people, right? Nothing 
can stand up to that. And that's the kind of stuff that provoked Jesus in Matthew 11, 11 to say that John the Baptist was the greatest of the prophets. So all the prophets that we read about in the Old Testament, you know, you have Moses and you have Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and, you know, all these incredible, and then the minor prophets, and they have these great, like, prophetic books and things that they teach, and, you know, they're great teachers of the law, and they have mystical experiences with God, but Jesus says, none of these prophets are greater than John the Baptist, because John the Baptist carries a revelation of Jesus that is on a complete other level from any of these other prophets. John the Baptist recognizes how special Jesus is, and he recognizes how perfectly Jesus puts the Father on display. And so, you know, we, we uh, see that John the Baptist had some disciples. And I think the thing that made John the Baptist great was because uh, he, he preached and prophesied about Jesus, and then when the time came, he just turned his disciples over to Jesus with an open hand. And then the story that we're going to read today, it's interesting. John has a little bit of a following. And I would imagine that like, if John the Baptist were alive today, he'd be the kind of person that would sell a lot of books. And he would definitely be able to plant big churches if he wanted to. He was a wild charismatic guy, and people were, were interested to hear what he had to say and what he was bringing into the world. But John the Baptist carried himself with a humility that was unparalleled among the prophets, and, and I would argue even teachers of Jesus after him. And in that time, that's really significant because, you know, today we learn information from teachers. We go to school, you know, for the first part of our lives. And for some of us, you know, for a lot of our lives, we're in a college town, right? Let's be honest. Some of us are lifetime, you know, we're lifers. And um, we, we learn information from teachers. But a student in Jesus' day would come to a teacher expecting that they would learn a, a new way of viewing the world. Now, good teachers do this. Good teachers still do this. And um, I think it's important to recognize that because they're not just coming to John the Baptist as, as a teacher to learn some information from. They're coming to John the Baptist and they're saying, form my worldview. They're submitted to John the Baptist in such a way that they are allowing him to redefine the way that they see and understand the world around them. So what makes a disciple, right? The whole point of this uh, this series is to talk about discipleship and learn about discipleship and so forth. What makes a disciple? Becoming a disciple of Jesus always begins with an invitation. So this is where we're going to pick up with the, with the passage for today. Uh, John 1.35, it starts out the next day. Again, John was standing with two of his disciples. So this is John the Baptist and his disciples. They're hanging out and uh, they're, they're standing there. A disciple is a student, a learner. And so in Jesus' day, students would choose their teacher. They would choose who they wanted to learn from. And uh, sort of like when young people like finish secondary school here in the States, they kind of decide, do they want to go into the marketplace? Do they want to go to college? Do they want to, you know, whatever. There's, there's options, right? So young people in Jesus' day who became disciples of a rabbi would decide which one they wanted to learn from. To, to get their education about the Torah, about the law and the scriptures. And so um, 
they, they would make this decision kind of based on the rabbi's knowledge of the, uh, the Torah what, and, and the laws and some things that are even outside of our Hebrew Bible that they had. And uh, they made that decision because the law was at the center of Jewish life. So they would hear of different rabbis and their teaching and, you know, what basically who had what reputation and they would decide who they wanted to learn from. And um, the authority in the rabbi's life, this is important, the authority in the rabbi's life actually came from the Torah. It came from the law. It came from their knowledge of the law. So they had no authority in and of themselves. But the more these people knew and the better they were able to train people up, the, the more authoritative they were because they had authority coming from the law. Does that make sense? Okay. Being a disciple in this framework was actually very transactional. So uh, it was kind of a means to an end with your goal being uh, becoming a rabbi yourself. So students would learn from a rabbi in order to become a rabbi. They had uh, an end in mind. And so these disciples were just their students, nothing more in terms of relationship. So disciples of a rabbi were just passing on their teachings. It was intended that they would become rabbis themselves and they would continue teaching in the same vein of the person that they had learned from. They would interpret the scriptures the same way. They would teach the scriptures the same way. A lot of the times they would, they would talk the same way. They would even imitate their rabbis like mannerisms and the ways that they presented themselves to the world, the way that they would interact with people their disciples would learn these, these like patterns of behavior. And disciples of the rabbis were attempting to bring the nation of Israel's former glory back. So the whole idea was the better we understand this law, the better we understand these scriptures, the more effective we will be in making Israel what it used to be. Does that make sense? So Israel was this great, powerful kingdom And then it had kind of fallen and been taken into captivity. And now Israel was basically controlled by like a puppet government of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire had these these different districts carved out and different, you know, leaders of each one. And so Israel was being ruled by people who weren't actually Israelites. They were Romans. And the, the thought was that if we can ingrain this teaching, this word, in our people in our children, one day we'll be able to restore the glory of Israel's kingdom back to what it was. And separation from unclean and unrighteous people was paramount in rabbinic Judaism. They would go to schools, you know, separate from society, separate from other people. They would, uh, they would keep themselves walled off, basically, and, and pure and clean and away from outsiders. It was important for them. And discipleship to Jesus flips almost all of these customs upside down. Because a disciple of Jesus is chosen by Jesus himself. Um, Jesus has authority because Jesus is God. So Jesus' authority doesn't come from the scriptures. He he possesses authority that is in and of itself. He is... uh, he, he is asking disciples to renounce everything, not for the sake of the Torah, but actually for the sake of Jesus himself, which is radical and part of the reason that these people hated him, right? Uh, he had broken away from all these 
traditions. It, it, he didn't have a transactional relationship with his disciples. Jesus calls his followers to be lifelong friends of his. Very different from the paradigm that we have in rabbinic Judaism. Um, becoming a disciple of Jesus wasn't a step toward a promising career. It was a goal in and of itself to be a lifetime disciple of Jesus. So disciples of Jesus don't one day replace their rabbi. You're a disciple of Jesus for life. And these disciples aren't just called to reproduce his teaching. They're called to be with him and be his witnesses. Be witnesses to the things that he did and said and how he acted on the earth. Um, they were not trying to restore a nation to its former glory. Disciples of Jesus worked to pull the future kingdom of God into the present. Disciples of Jesus worked to pull the future kingdom of God into the present. So rather than trying to restore something that was, the purpose of disciples of Jesus is to say, we have promises from God, from the Messiah. We know what the future kingdom looks like. Because he tells us about it. He says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he actually, he heals sick people. And he proclaims freedom to captives. And he turns the status quo of society on its head. And he acts completely differently toward outcasts and unclean people than, than the rest of the rabbis did. And so it's clear that Jesus isn't trying to restore something that was. He is inaugurating something new. And that's fundamentally important to being a disciple of Jesus. We have to grasp that proclaiming and demonstrating the power of the kingdom in love is at the center of what Jesus is calling disciples to. So we keep going. Um, the disciples are standing with John. It says, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by. So they're standing there hanging out. Jesus is walking by. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So Jesus is captivating. I, I, I don't know how to say this in any other way other than just when you're faced with the reality of the person of Jesus, of who Jesus is. And some, for some people, that's you know, through the scriptures. And for some people, that's through a supernatural encounter. And for some people, that's through the life of another person. And they see Jesus in that, and they're like, what is going on? Jesus is captivating, and I believe that Jesus is irresistible. And when we, when we come face to face with the true Jesus, he, he, is, he is just the most beautiful and incredible person that has ever been, God in human form. Um, you know, for centuries, the Jews had been waiting for the Messiah to come. And from the first promise of a Savior in the Old Testament, they had been on the lookout for this Redeemer. So they had some context for this. <laughs> when Jesus walks by and John the Baptist says, hey, there goes the Lamb of God, they're like, you betcha, right? We're, we're, we're ready. And so uh, they followed quickly, right away. And I think there are different paradigms for how we come to recognize Jesus. Because, you know, these guys had it in their minds because of John's teaching. They were like, we're ready. We're waiting. We're watching. And when this Lamb of God comes, we're, we're out of here. We're, we're going with him, right? There are 
different ways of going about that, though. You know, Nicodemus is a famous example of this uh, throughout the rest of the story of the Gospels. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, it was a Jewish legislative body that was made up of, like, the elders of the community. It was actually a really politically charged thing. So you could think of Nicodemus as, like, a fervent politician. And his reputation in the public was very important to him. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night first, right? And he comes to him at night when nobody's around, and he asks him some questions, and Jesus gives him some questions <laughs> in response to his questions, and he has to think about it a little bit. And then he goes back where he came from, and he visits him a couple more times. And eventually, we find Nicodemus on the scene among the faithful few caring for the body of Jesus after the crucifixion. It's a gradual process where Jesus is winning Nicodemus over, uh, over, over a period of time. Um, when I was in my teens, you know, kind of given the folks that I had started to form friendships with and what was going on in my mind, I was not really on a great trajectory. Mentally or spiritually, I was not headed to a good place. And I don't want to make something of my story that isn't. You know, I wasn't totally off the rails. But if God hadn't met me when I was coming of age, I hate to think what I would have been doing and where I would have been 10 or 15 years after that. Um, I needed to be rescued. I didn't realize it, but I needed to be rescued from the future me. And in the summer of 2012, I wasn't a Christian yet, uh, and I wouldn't be for probably another 18 months or so. But I remember distinctly, I was working at a country club in Lima, and uh, that's where I grew up. And I was just hanging out. It was a super rainy day. I don't know why we hadn't been called off, you know, because there was nobody there. I mean, nobody was there playing golf. Nobody was there in the restaurant. It was just whatever. So I'm sitting there, and I was in one of those green plastic chairs that every golf course has on the patio, if you can imagine. Like, um, they, they remind me of the chairs on Robert and Mary's front porch, yeah? So <laughs> these, if, you, if you leave and you drive by, the, the green plastic chairs on their front porch, it was a lot like that. I was sitting in one of those. And there's a counter over here, and I was looking out this big garage door that was open, and it's just pouring rain. And I was thinking about God. And I thought to myself, you know, if there's a God, and I doubt there really is, um, it's kind of bogus that he hasn't really introduced himself to me or anybody I know. And uh, there isn't really, you know, you'd think that he would have a good reason to get involved. I mean, if he was outside of time and all-powerful and whatever, you know, all this stuff that I've heard about God, like, you'd think that he would have good reason to do something. Really. I mean, is he doing anything, you know? And so I'm thinking about this, and I had been raised in church, but this was the first moment that I can ever really remember considering God in any way, you know? And it wasn't a very spiritual moment either, you know? It was just raining, and I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking about God, and I was like, well, this kind of stinks. Like, if there is a God, I, uh, I'm out. And I, what I didn't realize was that I had left the door open just enough that over the course of the next year and a half or so, I'd have this like kind of Nicodemus experience with God where I would start to have questions and I would start to meet people. And Jesus was like slowly and gradually kind of wooing me to him. Does that make sense? And so it wasn't for me, it wasn't like follow me. Oh, yeah, okay, I'm in. Here I come. And, and I don't want you to feel um, like that's, like you have to make that up for yourself. You know, if you're on the journey, like 
evangelical preachers and, and thinkers put a lot of emphasis on this moment of being saved, being born again. And I think that that's really important. You must be born again, is what Jesus said. But I, I don't know if that looks the same for everybody. And so I would say, be patient with yourself and be patient with your journey with God and don't discount it because it's not as exciting or explosive as somebody else's. Does that sound good? Okay. So to be disciples of Jesus, the thing at the center of our discipleship needs to be the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because every rabbi, every good teacher has a thesis. They have something that they could kind of tack up over all of their study and all of their teaching and say, you know, my, my life, my career, my purpose is to kind of prove this thing or teach this thing to people or get this into people's minds. And for Jesus, it was the gospel of the kingdom. And how we understand the gospel kind of determines what we think of discipleship. How we understand what this gospel is will, de will determine what we do about discipleship going forward. Our friend Putty Putman said this about how the gospel relates to the discipleship in an article that he wrote a while back. He said, we do not know what we're aiming for with discipleship because our current understanding doesn't link discipleship directly to the gospel. Our understanding of the gospel is entirely salvation-oriented. It drives people to the point of conversion but then it largely leaves them hanging. And I think this is a good insight because if our picture of the gospel is, you know, um, you are a sinner and God loves you, but you have no power of your own to, to fulfill his law, to do his works and keep his commandments, you're doomed. But Jesus loves you. And so he died for you, and if you believe in him, you get to go to heaven when you die. That's the gospel that a lot of us have heard many, many times, right? And, and what I'm trying to say is that Jesus understood the gospel differently from that, because the gospel has to do with our life. The gospel that I just shared with you only has to do with your death. But the gospel of Jesus has to do with life. And so, you know, what Putty is saying here is this. If we have the wrong idea about the gospel, when we talk about discipleship, it kind of turns into like an ideas salad. Like we just have all these ideas, and we throw them together in a bowl, and we stir them up. And it's hard for us to give a concrete answer about what discipleship actually is, because it's tied to an understanding of the gospel that doesn't have anything to do with life. But discipleship has to do with life. Being a disciple of Jesus has to do with how you live your life and why you live your life, right? And so um, what happens is that discipleship becomes an exercise in learning facts about God and learning facts about the Bible and trying not to do bad stuff. And that's, I think that's the, the paradigm that a lot of us have culturally for what discipleship means. Um, and, and what discipleship is really about is it's about uh, doing what Jesus did. And having a relationship with God like the one Jesus had. And understanding who we are with respect to that the way that Jesus did. So it has way more to do with living life than it does dying. Does that make sense? And so after the disciples started to follow after Jesus, Jesus turned to them and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? 
And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And what's happening here has two important layers. Um, when Jesus asks what they're seeking, the disciples answer, where are you staying? Which is a very Jewish thing to do. They always answer questions with questions. A spectacular question that they're asking for two reasons. Uh, they understand that to become a disciple of Jesus, they need more than an elevator pitch. They understand that what they need to know about the gospel of the kingdom, they can't find out while they're standing there. And I admire efforts to explain the gospel in 30 seconds, but that approach makes converts, not disciples. And these two understand that to become disciples of Jesus, uh, they can't hear his message and go on their way. They need to find out how he's living. So, yes, character. A disciple of Jesus is called to reproduce Jesus' character, Jesus' way of living, and to become a friend of his. And, and that's why I say instead of applying the teachings of Jesus to our lives, we need to apply our lives to the teaching of Jesus. And I'm going to keep saying that in every message until we're all doing it, the, uh, until I'm doing it. Applying the teachings of Jesus to our lives implies that we can look at the teachings of Jesus, these otherworldly kingdom of God teachings that don't even make sense to human beings, and we can tweeze some of them out and deposit them in our lives and apply them to our lives, right? But the thing that Jesus is calling to is to apply our lives to his teaching. So we don't just tweeze teachings out and good ideas and good moral philosophies and some nice sayings and apply them to our lives. We take our lives and we form them around the life of Jesus. We form our life around the life of Jesus. Um, it's, it sounds like semantics, but I think it's really important. Applying Jesus' teachings to our lives has this meaning that we get to choose ingredients and assimilate them in, right? That's like self-help, okay? That's like self-help. You go and you read a self-help book, and maybe there's a good chapter in there. You say, ah, I'm going to start doing this. Uh, we are invited to a higher calling than that, right? I mean, if, if, if Jesus is the truth, if he's actually king of the universe, then, like, we should probably treat his teachings differently than that. So he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Come and see is Jesus' invitation to those who would follow him and learn his way of living. Uh, Jesus is inviting us to come along with him, to see where he's staying. You know the saying, what would Jesus do? Have you guys heard that? Like the, the really uh, old recycled thing for just over and over and over again. People, people have harped on that and, you know, whatever. I kind of don't like it because what it implies is that Jesus isn't doing anything anymore. Like the, the way it sounds is kind of like, what would Jesus have done? You know, like when he was alive. But if Jesus is raised from the dead, the question we should be asking ourselves is, what is Jesus doing? And the spiritual life with Jesus is a process of learning to identify in our own lives and in the lives of people around us and in the, in the spiritual world around us, what is Jesus doing right now? 
And so we don't have to hypothesize about what would Jesus do. We, we uh, get in touch with Jesus, the living Jesus, and say, Jesus, what are you doing? And I believe that's the way to become a disciple of Jesus. Um, it's true disciple of Jesus, discipleship to Jesus, that, that is the hope of the world. And I think that uh, the best way to push back against what the adversary is doing in our time, the Satan, right? It involves real intimacy with the truth and real connection with other people. And by the truth, I mean Jesus, because Jesus is the truth. Satan orchestrates distorted perversions of the, the kind of community that we really need and long for. Um, whether it's political parties, Facebook groups, you guys know how I feel about Facebook, uh, or conspiracy theories, people gather around shared systems of thinking that inform the way they see the world. And that kind of thinking causes people to form bonds around common enemies. Are we, are we all still here? That kind of thinking causes us to form bonds around common enemies. And uh, I believe that this is actually, uh, they're, they're uniting around what they fear and hate in the interest of self-preservation more than the truth. And I think that this is actually a form of worship in and of itself that reinforces and empowers the uh, powers and principalities that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6.12. When we're forming around what we hate, when we're forming ourselves around you know, the, uh, the, these ideas that have fear and self-preservation at the center, we're empowering evil powers and principalities. And if Christ is the truth, if Christ is the truth, which I believe he is, we have to see how fearful self-preservation is at odds with the truth. Um, Jesus' gospel is not a gospel of self-centered ascension to higher ways of believing. It's not. And so traditional discipleship would have us believe that this discipleship is a process of like believing higher and higher, like having more faith, having more and more and more belief, right? But the truth is that uh, the gospel of Jesus is, is an others-centered gospel of love and self-sacrifice, um, Henry Nouwen was a Dutch Catholic priest and a professor and a theologian, and in my opinion, he's one of the greatest Christian teachers of the 20th century, and his work has had a monumental impact on me. And Nouwen writes this. He says, how can we live in the midst of a world marked by fear, hatred, and violence and not be destroyed by it? To live in the world without belonging to the world summarizes the essence of the spiritual life. Our true house is not the house of fear in which the powers of hatred and violence rule, but the house of love where God resides. Through the spiritual life, we gradually move from the house of fear to the house of love. And, and so what I would say is that these communities formed around self-preservation and fear, that's what Nowen calls the house of fear. Uh, this is a little hot. I don't know if you can cut me back. Thank you. Um, and, and so, you know, when we're in the house of fear, when that's, our, when that's where our belief and our affections and our ideologies reside, we have to do the work of moving out of the house of fear and moving into the house of love. 
I love that picture, you know, moving our whole being from one house to another. There's the New Testament writers talk all the time about becoming a new creation, right? That's what it is. The new creation is the new house that God is moving us into so that we might be evidence of his others centered love of his cross shaped love for the world. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 7 when he says, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Jesus will deliver you from this body of death. He will deliver you from the house of fear. He will deliver you from ways of seeing the world that are not Jesus' ways of seeing the world. Uh, worship team, come on up. Thank you. Discipleship is, is by the Spirit being moved from the house of fear to the house of love, from the body of death being made new creations with a higher love and new desires. It's learning to understand our relationship with God, having been made sons and daughters and doing the things that Jesus did. And that's what Josh is going to talk about next week. He's going to talk about the, the, the inner workings of discipleship and what discipleship looks like. What I want everybody to leave here with today is an understanding that you are being invited. You are being drawn to be a disciple of Jesus. If you already call yourself a disciple of Jesus, Jesus is inviting you to move some more stuff out of the house of fear and into the house of love, yeah? So I'm going to pray, and then we'll worship. Would you guys just stand while I pray? And, you know, if you want, you can even hold your hands out like you're receiving a gift. And we believe that, that the Holy Spirit wants to encounter us, wants to encounter our minds, our bodies. And so I'm just going to pray. Jesus, we, we welcome you. We welcome your presence. We welcome your truth. You are the truth, Jesus capital T, truth. And so right now, Holy Spirit, would you just come and move in this room and begin to speak to us, begin to reveal yourself to us even more. And God, I thank you for um, just the, the word that you have said, follow me, come and follow me. And so whether that's like these two disciples or it's like Nicodemus or it's like me, uh, would, would we just have eyes to see and ears to hear what you're saying to us and, and how you're drawing us in this season? Amen.